0: Where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, February 14th, we are studying Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 17. Jesus sends the 12 out to proclaim the kingdom of God, to cast out demons, and to heal. When they return, Jesus takes them to Bethsaida, where Jesus does one of his best known miracles from all four gospels. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves as pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He is also one of the hosts of the podcast A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharp Brian.
1: Glad to be on as always.
0: Happy Valentine's Day, Pastor Heidi. Same to you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'm not sure that our text today has anything to do with St. Valentine. Maybe maybe you can make that connection for us as we go. As we get gonna, started, though, go ahead.
1: That's going to be a tough connection, but we'll see All right, what happens, well, So I, I have faith <laughs> in your
0: abilities, Pastor Heidi. So, Luke chapter 9, we're, we're starting that chapter today. What kind of context do we need to know from the preceding portions of Luke's gospel to help us into this chapter?
1: Well, I mean, the previous sections of this have been focused on miracles and the miracles that Jesus is doing. I think one of the purposes of this is because it's looking forward to answering the question of who Jesus is, which is something that you'll see, especially in the following section when we have the account of the transfiguration in Luke. So these miracles are focused on what Jesus, who Jesus is, what he's doing, what he has come to do. And we have a little bit of a I guess you could call it an interlude in our reading for today, talking about the sending of the 12 and the question of Herod and stuff like that. So, but we do get back to the miracles by the end of our reading for today.
0: Right. And and again, this is one of the most significant miracles of Jesus, one that's recorded by all four evangelists, which we'll talk more about when we get there. You you mentioned that the identity of Jesus is coming into, in a greater question, into fuller focus. I mean, what, given what we've learned about Jesus so far, what, what have we seen about his identity so far that's really going to, again, start to come to a climax really more in tomorrow's text?
1: Well, I mean, he's he's doing so many things that no ordinary, no ordinary man is going to be able to do. I mean, he's healing people with demons. He's healing the, the woman and Tyrus' daughter. I mean, he's doing all of these great miracles, and they're starting to ask the question, you know, who is this? In fact, Herod himself, who we'll get to, ask, you know, who is this that has been doing all these things? He thinks it's somebody else because he's not sure. But this this focus then on the identity of Jesus is going to be one of the, the key parts of of this part of the gospel, right?
0: Right. And one of the things, too, that just as you're going through the context, the teaching of Jesus has also led to questions of his identity. In several situations where he's preaching in a synagogue, it is his preaching and his teaching there That has authority that catches people' keep people's attention even before he does the miracles. Even before, say, he casts out a demon in the synagogue in Capernaum, the people are listening to him and they're recognizing there's something different about this guy. His teaching has an authority that they don't hear from their rabbis. And again, we're going to see that in today's text how the teaching and the miracles of Jesus really go hand in hand in this proclamation of the kingdom of God that that inbreaking breaking of God's reign among the people. So both of those things, I think, are going to come to, into play in the text that we've got for today. Any more introdu- response to that? Any more introductory comments before we jump into this text?
1: No, I think we can go ahead and just jump right in.
0: All right, so we are in Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. We'll pause there. It's the first six verses of our text today. Pastor Heidi, Jesus calls the twelve together. Remind us, who, who are these twelve? You can name them all, I suppose, if you want. It's kind of like but but who who are these twelve? What, what is this group that he's calling together here?
1: Well, he's of course calling who we call the twelve apostles. These are his I guess you could say his inner circle of disciples, because he has many more disciples than the 12 that are following him and listening to him, but the 12 are the ones he's going to call for a very specific purpose. And at this point in the gospel, we're going to see a little bit of that purpose, but of course their ultimate purpose will be fulfilled when they go to Jerusalem at Pentecost and are sent out as the 12 from there. So these are the his, I guess you could say his I don't want to say most important disciples, but they are the ones that he has called for for a very specific purpose, right?
0: Right. And we did see that happen back in chapter 6, where he set these 12 aside. He called them, he named them, he he called them the 12. Their names are, are given for us in Luke 6, verses 14 to 16. That's the 12 who come back into view here. And then, yeah, inner circle of disciples is maybe not a bad way to think about it, because as you said, especially in Luke's gospel, the term disciples is broader than the 12. So here we're very clearly talking about that smaller group, the 12. Jesus calls them together again, and I think this is the first time that he has called them together as a group since chapter 6. We saw Peter, James, and John in the previous text they were the ones that got to witness the miracle of the raising of Jairus' daughter. Now all twelve are together. And what is what does Jesus give to them as he sends them out? I mean, what what's going on here? You said this is kind of a precursor to what's going to come later. What's happening here?
1: Well, this is a you could almost I don't want you could almost call it a side mission or something. I of course that makes it that gives the wrong impression, but But what is happening here is Jesus is sending them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. He is sending them out to preach. But this particular mission is only a temporary one. You know, he's going to send them out. They're going to come back later by the end of our reading. And that will be the end of this particular sending. So this is a a precursor to what is to come because we don't want to think of it as like Pentecost before Pentecost has even happened. Jesus is sending them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, to preach the gospel, to heal for a specific purpose, which we will see as, as we go along, right?
0: Right. So, I mean, this isn't, it's not Pentecost, but it maybe is a preview of what's going to happen in a greater sense. As you said, they're going to come back. Is it, I mean, you know, Jesus has said elsewhere in the gospel that he has to go to other towns. I think that was at the end of his time in Capernaum at the end of Luke mm-hmm. 4, he says, "I've got to go to other towns." Is this kind of, I mean, Jesus almost sending them out to prepare his way? Not, not exactly like John the Baptist, but in in a sense, you know, he's he knows the news needs to go out about him, and so he's he's starting to let that happen. Here, is that kind of what's going on?
1: I think so. I think especially with the the proclamation of the kingdom, as Luke set, uh, puts it in verse two, uh, is a a real emphasis on Jesus. Jesus coming, you know, Jesus arriving kind of a thing, because the proclamation of the kingdom is that the king has come. You know, whereas with the the later preaching of the apostles, especially after Pentecost, then the preaching becomes, you know, Jesus is risen, Jesus is alive, this sort of thing. So there's a a slightly, there's a different color to this message. You know, this is to say the son of David is here. the, The promised king is here. So get ready kind of a thing. So, I mean, that's, I think that's really the, the heart of the message that Jesus has sent them out to proclaim at this point.
0: Right. And and this is toward the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He's In just a, a few texts, he's going to make a pretty significant turn and set his face toward Jerusalem. And so as, he, as he's getting ready to do that, he's kind of wrapping things up here in Galilee, in the, the northern part of Israel. He, he's getting that news out that the king is here. The proclamation of the kingdom of God, it's accompanied by power and authority over demons and the curing of diseases. The, I mean, Pastor Heidi, you, we were talking about the identity of Jesus earlier and how people are seeing Jesus do these things, casting out demons, healing diseases, and they're thinking something's different about this guy. They're asking who he is. Now Jesus is sending his disciples out with that same power that he has, and they're going to do miracles that at least are going to look like what Jesus is doing. How, how do those things relate? How, how, does, how do the, the disciples' or the apostles' miracles that they'll do relate to what Jesus does?
1: Yeah, and these are miracles similar to the ones that we will see in the book of Acts after, after Pentecost, after Jesus sends them out into the world. And I think the purpose there in Acts is the same as the purpose here. When the apostles, when the disciples, you know when the prophets do miracles, it's not to show that they are God, obviously. that's only when Jesus does miracles. but when they, uh, these guys do miracles, it is to show that they have the authority to to proclaim the message that they do, right this the the, the focus of what they're doing is preaching, but the miracles that go along with it show. That they are sent by god it 's kind of like saying, if you want to know that i 'm not just making this up, here 's proof for you, and this is the miracle that i 'm doing right
0: right, and I think you know that you certainly see that in the book of acts, say when when Peter and john they give the the lame man the ability to walk there in Acts chapter three and then afterwards in acts well, at the end of Acts three and into Acts four, when they start to explain what 's going on, they're very clear as to what happened was not because of any power inherent in them, but it was because of who Jesus is and, and what he's done. You know, here in, in the gospel, the identity of Jesus is the central question, as it is in Acts 2, but in, in a different sense. And since Jesus is here in the flesh prior to his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, we don't get a lot of that, that backstory, I guess, or we don't, we don't get to hear the narrative. Okay, well, what happened when, say, James and John went out and did this? We, we don't get to hear that. And that makes sense within the context of the gospel. But I would assume that, that part of this, when they would do these, you know, the healings, the casting out of demons, that within the preaching that's happening, they would be very clear as to what that means, that it's not something that James and John had, but it was about Jesus, the king, as you said, the proclamation, the king is here. And I think that's kind of, even though it's not made explicit right here, I think that's kind of the way we need to understand this in our minds.
1: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I would absolutely see, you know, the, what they're doing here as being a kind of preaching the message, telling them that the king is here. I'm sure that there would immediately be the question, well, how do we know that this is true? Mm -hmm. And that would be, be immediately followed by the miracle itself. So, I mean, again, a confirmation of the message to show that this is in fact the truth and that they are not, you know, just claiming these things for themselves.
0: And I think, I mean, we should also make the point, too, that it, the, these miracles of healing and casting out demons are certainly confirmation that the message is true. But I think they, they're even more than that, that they are a part of the kingdom of God coming. If, if the king has really come, then that means that his enemies are going to be defeated. And that would include the demons and sickness. And that's, I mean, so I think it's, it's a confirmation, yes, but it's also a part of the kingdom coming, which when you look at the way Jesus has preached and healed and they've gone together, I think it makes sense that you would see the same when his disciples or his apostles go out here in chapter 9.
1: And and that's fair. I guess the reason I emphasize the confirmation end of it is because miracles like this will eventually come to an end. I mean, this, of course, is, you know, Paul in Corinthians talking about all of these things coming to an end, but love going on. You know, the purpose of these miracles... Uh, has a very limited very focused kind of thing within the the beginning of the church that it de- eventually does end. But yeah, I mean it is part of the message that Jesus is victorious also over these things. And so we would see that in his body, which is of course the church.
0: Right, right. Oh, well, and, and think I mean, you know, at, toward, I think these miracles then should also point us toward the resurrection. When all the when all these miracles are ultimately made complete because the, you know, the, the people who received their sight, they, they one day died and all the, I mean, we've made this point several times here on Sharper Iron that, that anyone who received these miracles within the gospels later died and they are awaiting the resurrection in Christ. And that's when they're all made full when, when we receive that resurrection from the dead. So Jesus is sending the 12 out and he gives them some instructions and and pastor Heidi, some of these, especially when we think about the 12 and think about Jesus sending pastors I don't know if I like some of these instructions. Can can you can you take us into what what is Jesus why why these specific instructions about what to take and and really more what not to take with them?
1: Right. Well, I mean the the taking nothing for the journey, don't take a staff, don't take provisions, don't take money, don't even take an extra set of clothes. I, all of this shows that Jesus is sending them out in haste. This is a Get going, get out there, get the message going. Don't plan for it, just go. Now, of course, as we emphasize, this is a temporary mission, one that will come to an end. I don't think we should interpret verses, you know, three and forward as being somehow applicable to what we are doing as pastors or to what any Christian is doing. This is really just what Jesus is telling them is to get out there, get the message going now. Because there's no time to wait. This is a in, there's an urgency to this that I think has to be emphasized as we look at this passage.
0: Okay, so the the instructions have to do with in, an urgency to getting out and doing it, and not mm-hmm. that I think it's a very good point that we want to always be careful when we read the Gospels and the things that Jesus says to say a specific individual or a specific group of individuals. That we don't necessarily just take that and say, okay, Jesus is saying that to me right here where I am right now. That that's a dangerous way of, of reading the scriptures. We need to, to make sure that we understand is it a and a command right there for this person and this person only? Or how does that then come to me? And so it's it doesn't come to me as okay, when you go be a pastor or when you become a Christian, you you don't you don't take these things with you. That that's not the point. There there is something too though, I think, the the matter of trusting the Lord for daily bread. And, and maybe to, you know, to think ahead to, to what's coming in this text that, you know, the urgency and then the trusting in daily bread, I mean, that's, we're going to see that at the end what we get the, the last, the feeding of the 5,000 that's coming. And it, it is, it does strike me that Jesus in Luke chapter six gave his beatitudes in the sermon on the plain. And the very first one was blessed are you who are poor. And I mean, it's, it's some, it seems fitting, I guess, that the 12, when they go out, are going to be sent out in poverty, trusting that the kingdom of God that they're preaching is going to be received and they're going to be, they will get what they need through these people that are here from their Heavenly Father. Again, not a not something that we need to take as a one-to-one for us today, but I, I think theres it's fitting that they go out this way, given what Jesus has said previously.
1: Yo, absolutely. I mean, The whole point of, you know, go out and trust that you're going to be provided for is certainly part of this. And uh, I think maybe one thing to emphasize with this, you know, you talk about misunderstanding this or misapplying this. This is one of the passages, not specifically, but, you know, one of the passages like it that, of course, led to abuses in Christian history with things like monasticism and, and evangelical poverty and that sort of thing, taking these things to a literalistic extreme. Um, so, yes, there is a possibility of misunderstanding what it is that Jesus is talking about here and, you know, thinking of it in those kind of, oh, well, this is something I have to do as a result. But absolutely, when you say that we should trust in God to provide for us, I think that is in mind here, because even if you're not taking provisions with you, that doesn't mean that you're going to starve. God will still take care of you, and he's going to do what he's going to do, Right.
0: Right, and and the way that he's going to take care of his twelve in this case is by the people that receive the preaching. And some of of the instructions that are given here to the twelve, Jesus will repeat in in a different way when he sends out seventy-two later in Luke chapter 10 and and even expand upon them. But here, it's a little briefer here. He talks about some houses receiving, and you get to stay there, and, and I think the implication here is they're going to provide for you but then there are houses there are places that don't receive you and there's a different response. Can you tell us what is Jesus saying here about the way people will receive or not receive the message that the apostles bring?
1: Yeah. It's either going to be an acceptance because, you know, they receive it with joy and so they provide for the messengers sort of a thing, or when they don't receive it, when they reject it in the hardness of their unbelief, he's basically saying, well, just believe. This they they had they had the opportunity that was given to them by God. They rejected it in that moment. So turn away from them and shake your, the dust from your feet. You know, don't even don't even let the dirt of the town stay on your feet as you leave. Kind of a thing, because I mean, this is this is a message that Jesus has talked about multiple times uh, throughout the Gospels. That you know, those who reject His message now in a sense have become worse even than Sodom and Gomorrah they have become worse even than Tyre and Sidon these you know ancient cities which historically were very very wicked but they ultimate but because of what the sins that are happening right now to reject Jesus in this moment is in fact far worse right mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think I mean so the the shaking off of the dust is probably the I mean it's a sign of judgment Jesus as a testimony against them that listen mm-hmm. you you heard the proclamation of the kingdom maybe you even saw some miracles you didn't believe and so as a sign of judgment that yeah you did you did hear it but you didn't believe it we're not even going to take your dust with us. I mean it's a pretty pretty striking matter of judgment. But Looking at this this section of the text, Pastor Heidi, and and we were talking, you know, that there's some things here that we we don't want to take as a one-to-one for us as Christians or even as pastors today. But what what is here? I mean, it seems a very specific text at a given time and place, but what what is here? How do we take what Jesus does with the 12 here and make use of it in our lives as, as pastors, as Christians within the church today?
1: Yeah, I mean... One of the the things you could say right away with it, of course, is that we see an image of what it means to proclaim the gospel. I mean, yes, like I said, this is not Pentecost. This is something that is a little bit different. It It is certainly a temporary thing, but it is a picture of what it means to go out to preach the kingdom of God, you know, to go out to trust in God, to proclaim the message and to be very, very forward about proclaiming that message. One of the things I would also emphasize with this is the urgency of the gospel. We need to always have that in mind as we proclaim it, because the gospel is not just a, oh, well, here it is, you know, do with it as you will kind of a thing. This is a life and death message. And to reject the gospel in this moment, I mean, when it comes to you or when you're proclaiming it, you know, have the people that you're, that you're proclaiming it to reject it, how do we know that there's going to be another opportunity? You know, now is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable time. So it is this this urgency that sometimes I think that we lose because we live in a very uh, comfortable situation today, right?
0: Yeah, the, the urgency here is, is very, as you said, with <coughs> Jesus' instructions, just get going. Don't worry about your provisions. They'll be provided as you go get going, then the message is urgent. There's not a—and I think it's important we say this, too— is there's not a panic to this. You know, it's, it's not like, oh, no, what's going to happen? What do we do? What do we do? No. But there is an urgency to it, that it, it does need to be proclaimed, because the King is here, and what better news could there be? And so, yeah, the, the urgency—and then the—I think, in going along with that, the trust in God as we go about proclaiming that good news, that even when it is rejected— there will be people who do receive it. think think back to the the parable of the sower that Jesus told at the beginning of of Luke eight that you know there is going to be rejection there are going to be people that people believe that's the way things are. so go proclaim it now because it is urgent and trust in your Father to do the work that he intends with his word. I mean I think all of those are, are very important applications of of this text for us as Christians today. We do have more text to look at here in Luke chapter 9, but we are going to do that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're studying the first part of Luke chapter 9 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. We'll be right back. Please stick around. to 17 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. He is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we looked at the first six verses where Jesus sends his 12 out to preach, to heal, to cast out demons. They depart in verse 6. They do what he said. They preach the gospel. They heal everywhere. We're going to hear more about them in verse 10, but there's a bit of an interlude in the text, what Jesus does by sending out his 12, and I think even what he's been doing before that has caused a bit of a stir, and here's where the question of Jesus' identity really starts to take center stage. So we pick up in Luke 9, verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him." And we'll pause there, that's verses seven to nine for our text. Pastor Heidi, help us with a little bit of clarification here. We meet Herod the Tetrarch again. The, there's several Herods in the scriptures. Who, who is the Herod that we're talking about here?
1: Herod the Tetrarch is the Leader of I guess you could say the ruler of the region of Galilee. So if we think of the the Holy Land at this point being divided up into a couple of different regions, um, Galilee, of course being in the north, kind of more akin to what was the ancient northern kingdom of Israel, uh, that is ruled by Herod, who is the son of Herod the Great, uh, who of course, Herod the Great, we know from the Christmas story, the one who seeks to destroy Jesus. After Herod dies, his sons take power in a couple of places and Herod the Tetrarch, his son, uh, begins to rule in this region of Galilee. Of course, Rome rules the region around Jerusalem directly under Pontius Pilate. And so that's kind of the the politics of the area. But Herod is the the ruler of the northern part of the region of the region of Galilee. So that's who he is.
0: So he hears about all that was happening, and I would—I mean, you tell me what, what you think, Pastor Heidi. It sounds, the, all that was happening, I would understand, is not only the sending out of the Twelve and everything that's accompanying them, but even the the ministry of Jesus that we've heard thus far. Jesus has been—he's made quite a splash in Galilee. It makes sense that he and everything that he's been doing would get back to, to Herod, the, the ruler of that region. So, I, I mean, I think that all that was happening is probably— not just the immediate six verses, but a lot of what we've been reading in Luke thus far. And it's got Herod scratching his head because a lot of people are saying different things about Jesus. So, I me mean, talk a little bit. I guess let's start with Herod and his interest in Jesus, and then talk a little bit about what these answers that are being given by the, the people about who Jesus is.
1: Yeah, Herod is an interesting one because his interest is, I think it's just more purely he's not really sure what to make of Jesus. We should not understand Herod's interest as a interest of faith, especially because when we get to the the passion of of Christ, uh, Herod eventually will see Jesus face to face and he wants him to do some miracle for him. But when Jesus refuses to do that miracle, Herod finally rejects him and turns away from him. So I think his interest is, This guy is doing these amazing things, and he wants to see them for himself, but because of his actions, because of what else we know about him, uh, we should not understand that as the interest of faith, especially because it says in in verse 9, he says, John I beheaded, which is a reference to his uh, murder of John the Baptist over the issue of uh, Herodias, his brother's wife, who he had illegally and immorally taken for himself. So again, he's really just interested in Jesus because he wants to see a show, I think.
0: No, I, I think you're. I think you're right. And particularly, as you said, Luke is the one who does record for us later about Herod's interest during Jesus' passion, and he's just looking for a sign from Jesus. And and once he doesn't get that sign, he has no no interest in him at all. And I think when you look at the the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, who do record more about the death of John the Baptist, and you you look at the interaction that Herod has with John, you know, there is this. He he's got some kind of interest. In the preaching of the kingdom of God, he even—I think I can't remember if it's Mark or Matthew. Maybe they both say it. They say that that Herod liked to listen to John, even, and you kind of get the sense from those accounts that he he only beheaded John begrudgingly, but he was kind of forced into it. That's not to excuse him. He—I he, think he's a bit of a tragic character within the within the narrative of the Gospels because he's he almost gets it, but he doesn't. And and falls into unbelief, which is a, a terrible thing. You know, maybe and while we're talking about Herod here, maybe this is the connection to to Valentine's Day, Pastor Heidi. Herod says, "John, I beheaded." And I, I think I I could be wrong about this. Maybe you know I've, i think I've seen at least some tradition that, that Saint Valentine was beheaded.
1: Right. Wow. This is this is this is really getting out there. But, um, yeah. The, the, Sorry. The, the, legend, the story of Saint Valentine. Was that when he was brought before the Roman emperor, uh, he proclaimed the gospel to the emperor, and as a result, uh, was beheaded for his witness. I mean, that's the that's the story of Valentine. So yeah, I guess there is a. A very, a very small connection to the the events of today, right? <laughs> there, there
0: you go. See, I, I knew, I knew you could do it, Pastor Heidi. I knew you would be the guy <laughs> to connect this to Saint Valentine. It is uh, just uh, briefly. I don't want to dwell on this too much because I'm not sure that I can, I can answer this question. It does. It strikes me that in Luke's gospel, <clears throat> Luke, the one that tells us a lot about the the nativity of Saint John the Baptist. I mean, we hear about the, the backstory to his birth, we hear about his birth, we hear about his naming. I mean we hear a lot about John the Baptist that we don't hear in the other gospels. But Luke, this is all that, that Luke records of of John's death, just that John I beheaded. It's Matthew and Mark are the ones that that tell us, you know, the backstory with Herodias and, and the whole vow that Herod makes and all of that. You can go read about that in those, those Gospels. It's in Matthew 14 and Mark 6, I think. But Luke just says, John, I beheaded. And I, I don't know if there's anything to that. It just strikes me that Luke gives us all this information about John early on. And when it comes time to, his, to tell us about his death, he just says, well, John was beheaded, and, and that's all. I don't know if there's anything more to say to that. I, just, I find that striking. I'm not sure why that is. Maybe I don't need to know, but it's, it's striking to me.
1: Yeah, that might be, as I like to call sometimes in my Bible study, a God question. Sure. Um, the the, the yeah. kind of question that we just aren't going to have an answer for. Uh, but, I mean, you could you could see it perhaps as emphasizing uh, Herod rather than John the Baptist in this exchange, because Luke is going to continue talking about Herod. Like you said, we will see him in the Gospel account. We also meet Herod's end in the book of Acts, this is something I did want to point out, too. Uh, in Acts chapter 12, when Herod basically is acclaimed as a god by some people, and he lets it happen, he likes to hear it, and God strikes him down and he dies as a result. So, I mean, it, it really does emphasize the, the character of, of Herod through all of this. Maybe, maybe that's Luke's point, is that he wants to talk more about Herod than he does about John in mm-hmm. this case.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah, again, I something that I find uh, striking. And again, probably not something that we're ever going to answer, but that's a, that's a good point that he Luke does tell us a lot about Herod that's still going to come. Now, what's going on then? Herod's got this interest in Jesus and he's he's hearing some of these things about Jesus. And again, this is really going to come into the center and into the focus after our text for today where Jesus is going to bring this question to his disciples. But just r- briefly here, Talk about some of the answers that are being given to Herod. When he's wondering who this Jesus guy is, he's being told, John's been raised, Elijah's appeared, and maybe it's a, another one of the prophets of old. What's going on in these answers that, that are being given about what might be happening with Jesus?
1: Well, and, and like you said, this is something that really gets answered more fully in the following segment, something you're probably going to cover tomorrow. But the, the the answers that these people are giving show that they recognize that Jesus is something extraordinary. They recognize that he is something more than just an ordinary man, and he's certainly not just some kind of imposter because he is doing things that they wouldn't expect people to be able to do. And so the answers they come up with are interesting, but they're ultimately deficient. They're, not, they're showing that they don't really fully understand what's happening, and they don't really fully understand who Jesus is. Which, of course, as he will say to Peter, tomorrow when you get to that passage, is something that only comes from revelation. It comes from above. This has been revealed to you by the Father. They don't have that revelation. And as a result, they're coming up with any answer that they can. Uh, John being raised from the dead, you know, maybe he is this great prophet that they recognized in John, but he's come back. Uh, Elijah, of course, is a reference to Malachi, the prophecy of Malachi. Malachi. You know, that he will send uh, Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's, that's where that idea comes from. And then others just say, well, maybe he's just one of the great prophets of old because he's doing things that many of the prophets of old also did, but in a much greater way, of course. So again, these things are, show that they don't really understand who Jesus is, and so they're just trying to find any answer that they can Right. Yeah.
0: I mean, interesting, but deficient, I think is a good way of describing it. They're on the right track I mean, to to recognize that Jesus is some sort of a prophet, which I think when they identify him with John, Elijah, that that's part of what's going on. They recognize that, you know, here's here's someone who's preaching the word of God. They're they're on the right track, but they're not there yet. They don't have the fullness of that answer. That answer still has to be revealed to them. As as you said, this is an answer that can only be given when the father reveals it to us. And that's what Jesus is going to keep doing. And and so we come then to the next part of the text, which I think is a part of this revelation of who Jesus is seeing these incomplete, insufficient answers. We need to keep seeing the the truth of who he actually is. And again, part of the way he's been doing that in his Galilean ministry is through his miracles. And so we come to probably one of the most well-known one that's recorded by all four evangelists, the feeding of the 5,000. So we pick up the text in Luke nine, verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Luke 9, verses 10 to 17. So the, the feeding of the 5,000, as, as it is commonly called, is, I, I believe, other than the resurrection of our Lord, this is the only of Jesus' miracles that is recorded by all four evangelists. It's, it's obviously a very significant event in Jesus' ministry. Why why is this such a big deal Pastor Heidi the feeding I mean it's really cool but but why why is that so significant that it would get recorded in all four gospels
1: Yeah cuz I think it's one of those miracles that ends up being for the lack of a better way of putting it a, a defining moment because this it, for the the fact that they all record this in one way or another and this isn't the only feeding of the thousands that he does but the fact that they record this, it certainly shows something about who Jesus is, something about His power, and it also says something about God as well. I mean, because one of the you can you could talk about the provision that's being given, you could talk about the uh, what this says about Jesus as you know coming into the world. I mean, there's there's so many connections to what is happening here that I think there's a reason why the all of the evangelists felt a need to record it. So. Maybe we just need to pick one and kind of start there, right well you, where do you want to go with it
0: you you <laughs> pick pastor heidi we're, oh. we're, let's start with the provision that seems pretty obvious yeah, that's the first one okay. I think you mentioned that and that seems very clear. Start with the
1: provision okay, so to take the five loaves and the two fish, as he does here, and to provide food for five thousand men you know it's very specifically men, so the the actual number of crowd the actual number in the crowd could actually be greater than this. Uh, He is providing food in a place where they would not expect food to be provided, right? Because they're out in the wilderness. They're kind of away from the towns. This is a very large group of people. And you're wondering, how is he going to be able to provide food for all of these, all of these people? And he's able to do that because he is the Lord. And, you know, this recalls the provision that, God made in the wilderness where he provided bread for his people and quail as well. Uh, This recalls, you know, the God taking care of his people through all kinds of different things. I mean, it really does emphasize God's graciousness and God's uh, providence in providing for his people. And I think that the fact that Jesus is doing this right in front of their eyes emphasizes uh, the reality of that, you know, that he is not just a man he is god and a god who cares about the plight of his people right
0: right yeah the, the god who who cares the compassion that he shows i mean and, and just think about the the situation i think it i think it's a mark that emphasizes this a little bit more you know the apostles have just been sent out they've come back uh, and the text says that jesus withdrew i mean he's he's kind of trying to pull away from the crowds here a little bit give his disciples some time to rest but they find him as as they often do, and he doesn't send them away. He welcomes them. He has you know this compassion on them. He teaches them, even though he's likely tired. Surely his apostles are tired. He still welcomes them and he provides for them. So yeah, I think I mean not only the the provision of God and in a, a man an abundant way, everyone is satisfied. The text says, and then there's this twelve baskets of of leftovers. But the, the mercy, the compassion of Jesus in doing this for the crowds, I think that's, that's another aspect of, of who God is that we see, his, his mercy, his compassion, not just the, the sheer fact of providing, but he does so out of his love.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And the fact that he is so willing to do it, even despite his tiredness, even despite his wanting to withdraw, you know, these people come to him and he does not turn them away. And even when he wants to send them out into the villages or whatever, or to test them, I guess, as John likes to say, you know, he, he, he shows his compassion. He shows his mercy in these things. But I think one of the things that we should also emphasize with this is that it says something about who Jesus is and the mis- mission that he has come to proclaim. Uh, because this isn't actually the only multiplication miracle in the Bible. Uh, this is a this is reminiscent of something that happens all the way back in the Old Testament, actually, in the days of Elisha, Elisha, not Elijah. <laughs> Don't know how you could ever get those two confused, but um, Elisha in Second Kings, chapter four, does a very similar thing. He is given bread and he sets it before a hundred men and they ate and had basically exactly what they needed. It was a little bit more, but it was more or less what they needed. And so we see that miracle being performed by one of the prophets of old. For Jesus to perform this miracle as well, perform it in a far greater way, and to have so much left over, shows that he is not only, you know, a, a prophet, you know, he is not only the one who is coming after Elijah, the greater Elisha but he's actually far greater than any of those prophets ever were. So this is something that shows the the mission that Jesus has come to proclaim, the mission that he has been sent on, and it also shows how he far exceeds all of those who have come before him. Right.
0: So there's a connection to what we were just talking about in the answers that Herod was getting in verse 8 of this chapter. You know, he's he's talking about John, Elijah, one of the other prophets— the very next thing that, that happens is that Jesus does this miracle that connects to Elisha. And again, that's, I mean, that's significant because Elisha is the one who gets the double portion of Elijah's spirit. Uh, you know, that's in, I think, first Kings or second Kings. And, second I mean, so Kings, you, yeah. second Kings. Okay. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, so he gets the double portion and then, you mean, wow, you think about how, how John, is the Elijah who was to come and here's Jesus following him as someone who's I mean it, again even greater. Uh, I think this this miracle coupled with those answers that Herod was getting in the previous text and then those answers that are going to be repeated in the text we look at tomorrow right here in the middle here's here's the answer. Okay, yeah you you think Jesus is a prophet you're you're on the right track but you need to see something more. And and as evidence of that here's something That Elisha did, and that was really amazing what he did, but now Jesus is really upping the ante here and just taking it even farther, not just feeding what they need, but providing all the leftovers and then I mean, the tons more people that we're talking about. So yeah, Jesus within this miracle and knowing that Old Testament background is showing who he is clearly to these these people who are asking the questions, and that's going to be made more certain in the text we're going to look at. Tomorrow, what what else is here? That's that's good, Pastor. Heidi. So we've got the provision of God, the identity of Jesus. What what, what else can we make connections with with the feeding of the five thousand?
1: Well, I mean, we could look at any number of any number of the miracles that Jesus is doing. I I think that the emphasis needs to be on you know what he is doing and why he's doing it. I mean, is there is there a particular direction you want to go with this? I mean, I know we're kind of coming towards the end of of our hour, so.
0: Oh, let's see, we got about six or seven minutes here, so let's. I mean, one one thing I do think maybe we want to talk about because it's a question that I I will get asked is you know Jesus does the miracle of feeding, and right. the language that's used to describe the taking of the loaves, the looking up to heaven, to saying a blessing, breaking the loaves, giving them, is is language that is going to be repeated pretty closely. When Jesus has another very significant meal later in the gospel, the Last Supper with his disciples, and not uh, no, no, we're not certainly not saying that this is the Last Supper or that this is Holy Communion or something like that, but it, it seems like maybe there are some connections that the evangelists invite us to make with the feeding miracle and the feeding that happens in the Last Supper and Holy Communion for us today. That that's one direction I think we we could look at that's pretty I think is pretty significant.
1: Sure. I guess as you uh, kind of put the disclaimer on there already, I always get a little hesitant with this kind of discussion because I think you can sometimes get carried away with uh, what sounds similar, but ultimately has got some pretty important differences that we can't overlook. You know, if we want to say that this is Holy Communion, for example, what do you do with the fish? <laughs> I mean, sure. it, it's, it's, I mean, and, and I understand what you're saying. There is a verbal connection to what's going on. And I think we can see some of these ideas at work in both cases. You know, that God, uh, that Jesus is blessing these things, that he is providing them as a way of taking care of us, that he is multiplying uh, his body and blood in that sense. I mean, I, kn- I know we don't usually talk that way, but, you know, to to provide it for Billions of people and not just, you know, 5,000 sort of a thing. So, I mean, there are verbal connections to these things, and I think those connections can be made. I just always get a little, a little hesitant when trying to make a, a, a one-for-one kind of thing. Well, no, and I, no.
0: I don't – we shouldn't make a one-for-one, for, certainly not a one-for-one. I mean, I, right. I, don't, I don't think any, anybody wants to do that. I certainly don't. But I, I do think that there are... Okay. Well, here, here's one. Think, in this, we've been talking about how in this miracle, Jesus reveals who he is. There's this sort of... And I know the language of eyes opening isn't used within this text. But that's, that's almost what it seems happens for Peter in the next text. It seems like there, you know, those, these things follow each other. That within sure. the breaking of the bread, Peter sees something about Jesus. And, and certainly he doesn't, got, he doesn't have the full picture here. And, and then thinking forward in Luke's gospel, there's the road to Emmaus, where in the breaking of the bread, that's when those two disciples, their eyes are, are suddenly opened. And again, I mean, and, and I know, you know, what's happening in Emmaus, I'm not necessarily saying that that's Holy Communion. But there, I, there's just these these connections, not one-to-one, but I think these these connections that, that invite us to at least think about what Holy Communion does do for us. Such that you know, in Holy Communion, Jesus is providing food that satisfies, and satisfies in an even better way than what is recorded here in Luke chapter nine. And in Holy Communion, Jesus does open our eyes to to who He is; that we get to you know, we see His forgiveness and receive that forgiveness in in the most individual way, and and yet together as as a church. I mean, those are that's kind of kind of what I what I'm talking about. Not a one to one. But sure. seeing some of the things that Jesus reveals about Himself, and then how He brings that to us in a a meal setting—that's not the same, but but still does come to us in that that meal of Holy Communion.
1: And I think that's fair. I think you can certainly do those kinds of connections because they certainly teach us something about what is happening in Communion and uh, what it what God is doing for us in that moment. I guess the reason, like I said, I've I've heard much more direct things before, like personally. And I, it always made me uncomfortable, so maybe I'm just overreacting, but it, it, you know how it goes.
0: <laughs> That's right, sure. I mean, we, we, we want to be careful, right? We want to listen to the text and, and read the text, believe what the text says, and not go beyond the text, no doubt. And, and certainly we, we should be careful not to equate the two and make some assumptions or incorrect conclusions about the sacrament based on what Luke nine says, we want to draw, draw our teaching concerning the supper from those texts that are most clearly about the supper, and then I, I think a text like this can help uh, illuminate some of those things, and, and we can draw some parallels. Very carefully, of course. So, so thank you, Pastor Heidi, for indulging that and and for you know sharpening <laughs> my iron on that on that matter. So, Absolutely. Pastor Heidi. We we got about two minutes here on the morning before the before the music gets started. Again, this very significant miracle, the disciples getting sent out. Help us to to wrap things up and, and give us I mean what's what's the good news? This is a really cool thing that Jesus does. Wow. I mean, who wouldn't love to watch this and certainly wouldn't love to be fed by this? But but what do we do with it? I mean, what's the lasting good news from Luke chapter nine?
1: Well, the lasting good news as we will see going into the whole, the rest of the the Gospel of Luke is that this is not just a man, this is not just a prophet, this is God himself. That God has come down in his son, Jesus Christ, that he is the one who is doing all of these things to truly show who he is. And so we can look at miracles like the feeding of the 5,000. We can look at all of these things and see in it our Savior, Because he is the one who has come among us in order to take care of us, in order to provide for us, but also to give us the very greatest thing of all, which is himself. That he will go to the cross, that he will die for us, and and that death is not just an ordinary death, but is in fact God dying for our sins that we may be forgiven. So. Yeah, the the, the focus on the identity of Christ is good news for us because it shows that this man is our Savior and our Lord.
0: Pastor Zellwin Heidi is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He is also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken, helping us today with Luke 9, verses 1 to 17. Pastor Heidi, happy Valentine's Day. Thanks for being our guest. Thank you. Dear Saints of our Lord, Jesus is the Christ, the one who provides our daily bread, the one who provides in great abundance. We see it in his feeding miracles. We see it in his sending of the 12. He has provided for the proclamation of his gospel to you, to me, to this world, that we might believe in him for salvation. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 9 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.